If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to the book of Acts. Let's go to chapter 11. We want to pick up our study in verse 19 and take it to the conclusion up to verse 30. They were first called Christians in Antioch. We're going to read that and study that in verse 26. At this point in church history, the church has merged from not just Jewish believers, but God has graciously added Gentile believers to Jesus Christ. And that's where we come in as a Gentile nation. Not only has salvation uh, come to the Gentiles, but also the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we've been developing this. It's interesting how God in Acts chapter 10 had to get a hold of Cornelius and he got a hold of Peter. We have the Jewish mind, we have the Gentile mind, and how God brought them together as he spoke to them in a vision. Very difficult as we shared for a Jew. The law, the strictness of the law. And now, not only salvation, but the power of God's Holy Spirit given out to Jew and Gentile, as we shared in our study. God is no respecter of persons, and I thank the Lord for that. God forbid that he would only choose this group of people and not choose this group of people. That's not the way God operates. And yet in some cultures, uh, it's exactly that. And so we come to this place now. Uh, they used to call them those of that way, speaking of the church, speaking of those that were followers of Christ, uh, those that are, are the followers of the Nazarene, they would say. But one of the, the favorite to, subject was those of that way. In other words, they left Judaism, and now they're following the way of the cross. I want to give you two promises that Jesus gave before we get into our text. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. So just leave a marker, back up a little bit. Jesus gives two promises. The second promise is go and make disciples of all nations. That's the Gentiles. He's dead. He rose again. And he had a 40-day post-resurrection. He's getting ready to ascend back into heaven. He leaves this promise, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send the parakletos, the Holy Spirit. And so we see in Acts chapter 1, look at verse 4, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, and these are the words of Christ, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Ten days later, at Pentecost, in the upper room, the 120 were sitting just like you. They were waiting for the promise. The promise was given in prophecy back in the book of Joel in chapter 2. And the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And we know since Acts chapter 2, the church has never been the same. But the ultimate was not just uh, to the Jews, but the Holy Spirit has fallen upon the Gentiles there at Cornelius' house. Now they're going to take it to Antioch, and the Holy Spirit is going to fall upon them. Look at verse 6 and 7. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons. He says, 
which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. The word is martyrus uh, in the Greek. It's where we get our English word martyrdom. You shall be martyrs to me in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The church is being developed. They are concerned, Lord, will you restore the kingdom now? I want you to think of the oppression that was upon the church from the religious sect, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. And then in the political realm, Lord, free us from the oppression of Rome. And so they expected for the kingdom age to be now because here's Messiah. They've received him as Messiah. And here we are, 21st century, and we are still waiting for the Lord to come for his church. Now, this was the first promise. The second promise, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Jesus is preparing his disciples again. Go teach all nations. And he speaks about the Great Commission now, I have to be very honest with you. The Great Commission was not just for the disciples at this time. The Great Commission was not just for the 12 apostles, but the Great Commission is for all of us. As we were speaking about uh, the class on evangelism, it's our place to reach out. I can't go to your all of your homes. Now, you can invite me and I can go share with your loved ones, but they need to hear from you, your brothers, your sisters your aunts, your uncles, and then what about your neighborhood? What about your workplace? For the last 35 plus years, uh, I've tried desperately to evangelize my family. And a lot of them have heard the gospel, but Jesus warned us, a prophet is without honor in his own country. And so he was often not received. But listen to the Great Commission's simple teaching here. Matthew 28, look at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into the Galilee, uh, to the mountains which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. They recognize him now as the Messiah. Uh, but some doubted. Listen to this. There were people that doubted then. We often speak of doubting Thomas. But what about today? Are there still people doubting today? The answer is yes. Some of your family, some of your loved ones. And you share the gospel with them as I shared. But then they have to see your witness. Don't tell them you're a Christian. Don't tell them you're, you're a follower of Christ and you're still doing your sin nature. That's an oxymoron. There has to be change. There has to be transformation. There has to be this metamorphosis. Notice that Jesus says in verse 18, and Jesus came and he spoke to them and he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus has been given all authority. All authority. I don't know if you've ever run into anybody and they say, well, I believe in God. In order to get to God, you have to go through the Son. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father but through me. In fact, remember in the Gospel of John when, when Philip comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, show us the Father and it will be sufficient. What was Jesus' response? Philip, the Father and I are one. Ooh, radical statement. 
And then he goes to another passage, and then he takes it further. He not only says the Father and I are one, but he says, I am in the Father. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. I mean, it's there. It's called deity. It's called the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We're told in Colossians chapter 2, verse uh, 8 and 9, that in the Godhead bodily, we will see Christ. Philip, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are what? One deity. Jesus is the incarnate God. Uh, Jesus is the God-man. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. Why did he take on the body of a man? He became one of us. He identified with us. The trials, the hardship, the pains that we go through, Jesus went through. And then he dies on the cross for us to give us life, life eternal. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. But now this authority is given to the church, the disciples, the body of Christ. Look at verse 19. Go, therefore, make disciples, learners, students of all the nations. All the nations speak of the Gentiles, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And here's the promise. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So here's two promises. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. He has. The second promise, because you're filled with the Spirit, take the Word of God. Go and minister to those that need to hear. And so this morning, here's the third aspect. They were first called Christians. Look at verse 26, back in Acts now, chapter 11. They were, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The gospel is spreading. From Jerusalem uh, to Antioch, approximately 300 miles, unheard of at that time. Most travel was by foot. You traveled basically uh, about 25 miles a day. It was not easy. They, they didn't get on a, the freeway system or get on the bus or, or even a bicycle. And if they did have some kind of mode of transportation, it was a donkey, it was a camel, and it was tough. And so they're called Christians, finally, not those of that way, not those followers of the Nazarene. They're called Christians. The translation of Christian is to be Christ-like. Notice now, back in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26, we see the gospel. And it's going to spread because of trials. Notice in verse 19, those who were scattered, uh, those, the word is, uh, those that were part of the diaspora, spread out, after the persecution uh, that arose over Stephen. Uh, these traveled as far as Phoenicia, uh, Cyprus, and Antioch. And what were they doing? Preaching the word of God uh, to all not to all yet, but to the Jews only. This is why God is bringing it together. Back in Acts chapter 7, the persecution started by the stoning of Stephen. And the first he was the first deacon of the church. He was the first martyr of the church. I'm talking about the New Testament church. And when persecution began, many of the new believers, they scattered. These were Jews that went uh, as far as now, Antioch. 
they fled throughout the Roman Empire, uh, reaching places such as Phoenicia, uh, Cyprus, and now Antioch. Hard for us to grasp, hard for us to understand with a Western mind, but through the trials in the early church, through the persecution, even through martyrdom, God is working. Hard to understand. Through the trial, God is growing the church. Through the trial, God is expanding the church. I don't like trials. I don't think you like trials. And we all go through them. In the 30 plus years of ministry, pastor, pray for me. The doctor diagnosed I have cancer. Let's pray. Pastor, pray for me. I lost my job. I got a pink slip on Friday. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll be okay for a couple of months, but then the bills are going to hit. Let's pray. Trials happen. But it strengthens your faith. Trials happen. It strengthens your walk. You have two choices, as we shared many times. You can run from God or you can run to God. I find when I'm in the midst of my trials that I'm praying. I'm praying more. I'm seeking God more. Oh, yes, I ask him, Lord, why am I going through this? And I know the answer, why not? God uses trials in my life. I write these scriptures down. In James chapter 1, we all know the teaching. James is the half-brother of Jesus. James is the, the pastor of the Jerusalem church. But listen to what he says. My brethren, he's speaking to the church, the body of Christ. Uh, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. When you fall into various trials, testing. I don't like that. And yet it's part of my life. It's part of your life. And sometimes through the cancer, that loved one comes to know Christ. Sometimes through the cancer, uh, the family member, uh, they come to know Christ. How does God do these things? Why does God do these things? Notice now, in James chapter 1, verse uh, 3 now, we know that through trials, James says, God is building patience. He's building patience. Knowing that the trials of your faith produce patience. Again, I can have a hard time with that. You mean through what I'm going through, Pastor Bob, uh, this is what's happening? The trials are, are, are building patience in me? When we look at the Greek word for patience, he's, he's building stamina. He's building endurance. Listen, he's building my faith. And he's building my character. Sometimes, and you have to admit this, God takes us and he has to chip away the old man. He has to chip away the old woman. He takes away those things that are dragging us down. When everything's fine, I'm not going to prayer like I normally pray. When things are, are okay, the money's coming in, the bills are being paid. Oh, well, I'm, you know, taking off to the butte this weekend. Uh, I'm not going to go to church. I mean, those things happen, and there's nothing wrong with getting away. But count it all joy uh, when you fall into various trials testings and everything that we go through Jesus had to have been tempted go back and study Matthew chapter 4 before Jesus comes into his public ministry he was 
tested. He was tested. And it happens in each and every one of our lives. And so what's the church doing now? It's growing. It's growing strong, the power of the Holy Spirit. They're ministering not just to the Jews, but also to Gentiles. They're filled with the Holy Spirit at Cornelius' house. And we're going to see at Antioch, the Holy Spirit falls again. That's why he said back in Acts chapter 1, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send to you the parakletos, the word para, para, he comes alongside. He will lead me and guide me into all truth. And so the church is growing 300 miles away. Unheard of. Look at verse 20 now. Let's go back to our text. He says, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, uh, who when they had come to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists, uh, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. They weren't pe preaching against them. They were preaching with them. They were ministering Christ. These were disciples from Cyprus and Cyrene. Uh, there are believers. They're taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And uh, they begin the first actual mission uh, to the Gentiles. Uh, they minister to the Hellenists in Antioch. Now, let me give you a background. The Hellenists spoke Greek. But not always uh, of the Greek race or the Greek nation. Uh, many times they were Jews who adapted the Greek language, uh, the customs and the culture. But now they're in Antioch. And many of them could have fled because uh, of the persecution. But we have the first example of Christians preaching to the Gentiles with evangelism. Very important here. With great results. Antioch uh, was a city that needed God. Antioch was a city that needed the gospel. Now, preaching is always for the non-believer. What you're doing here this morning is teaching. Teaching is for the believer. Why Antioch? It's interesting. I want to give you some background. Because Antioch goes from a big city uh, down to a small city. Antioch was founded around 300 B.C. by Seleucus I, one of Alexander the Great's men. Back then, listen to the size of the city. It's a big city today. It was considered about a half a million people. Antioch was the third greatest city in the empire at this time, behind Rome and Alexandria. Antioch was known for its sophistication of culture. It was known for their theatrical arts. But listen to this. It was also known for their immorality. They worship Artemis. They worship Apollos. They worship Astarte. With this, worship always was added with the rituals of prostitution. This is why they needed the gospel then. But here's what's interesting when you do a background study. Antioch of Syria, it's a Turkish town now. It's under 5,000. As they needed the gospel then, they still need the gospel today. Here's our community. We're not obviously as big as El Paso. We're not obviously as big as Tucson. That's the next big city. We're not close to Albuquerque, but yet God has brought the gospel here. And that's the power of God's Holy Spirit. And so God was reaching out to Antioch. These men, who, who's in, who was the man that was there in Cyrene? Remember Simon of Cyrene? He carried the Lord's cross. Did he take the gospel back? 
but there was men of God there. Look at verse 21 now. And they and the hand of the Lord was with them, these men from Cyprus and, and from Cyrene. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed, and they turned to the Lord. Notice that the believers from Cyprus and Cyrene, they took the gospel to the Hellenists. How did they do this? But by faith, God blessed it. Notice a great number of them turned to the Lord. And we have to say amen to that. God uses men and women that are saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's where you and I come in. That's where you and I come in. You guys come, you receive, and you're to take it out. Uh, that's the message of the gospel. It's beautiful. And how can you keep it? If truly the Lord has set you free, how can you hoard it? How can you not want to explode inside and say, Lord, i got to share with somebody? And I would challenge you, get up in the morning and pray. Before you do anything else, Lord, pray. You have your time of worship, praise. And then ask the Lord, Lord, I'm taking off to work, taking off to school. Lord, I'm going shopping. Lord, uh, you know, I'm going to go fishing, Lord. Lord, use me today. Use me today. And I've heard countless stories. Guy takes off during the middle of the week, and he says, I'm going to go do some fishing. Nobody's going to be at the fishing hole. Maybe he takes off up to, you know, Rio Doso, and there he is looking at the lake. Nobody there. Just he and his little pole and his worms, right? And all of a sudden, here comes this guy way over there. And you know how fishermen are. You catch a fish and catch another one, they got to come over. What are you using? I always tell them prayer. They don't like that. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you came. You didn't bring your Bible. You're going to go fishing. You're going to take some time off. And here's this man. Comes over. Befriends you. Wants to know, what are you catching? So you share a Coke with him. He has a half a sandwich, whatever it might be. All of a sudden, you were going to be alone, but he's there. And you forgot that little prayer. Lord, use me today. And one thing led, leads to another, and he begins to share. You know, I'm really, I just needed to get away today. I'm not, things are not good at work. Things are not good at home. In fact, my wife is thinking of leaving me. And so all of a sudden, that little prayer comes into being. Well, I wish Pastor Bob was here. Pastor Bob's not there. Well, you don't have, I don't have my Bible. What am I going to do? Give him your testimony. Share with him. Let him know. Evangelize. That's what the whole class is about on Saturday mornings, learning to evangelize. And it's not easy. But if God puts it in your heart and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, I've gone up to people, uh, time passed, and they don't want to hear it. But they listen. They want to hear it. They're hurting inside, even though they think no. I want you to remember this verse here, because this is what's happening. They're reaching out to the Hellenists and such. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, uh, the Word of God is alive and it's powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, uh, cutting between the soul and the spirit. Between the joint and the marrow, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Remember when the Word of God was shared with you? Remember when even a track was given to you? Remember when somebody said, hey, do you know Jesus? What do you mean, do I know Jesus? 
I used to respond to that so easily. What do you mean do I? I went to Catholic school for 12 years. Come on. I've done all the requirements. Come on. And so we're always looking for a way of escape. But when the word of God finally hits you, a two-edged sword cuts as it goes in and it cuts as it goes out. I don't know about you, but I've been through enough Bible studies and enough preaching. I've been cut many times. And I know some of you have been cut many times. That's the power of God's word. And so the word of God, not just to the Jews, but it's also going out uh, to the Gentiles. Unheard of, as we shared out of Acts chapter 10. Look at verse 22 now. Then news of these things uh, came to the, the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. News always traveled fast, even though we said Jerusalem to Antioch, around 300 miles. They didn't have mode of operation to, to travel as we do. Most of it was done by foot. And generally, 25 miles or so a day. But how did they receive the word? How did they get it? Caravans would go. People were taking their wares to you know, Antioch and, and beyond. And then they would pick up other wares and bring them back. And the stories would spread. And this is what's happening in Antioch now. And so, who is this Barnabas? And we're going to begin to see the ministry of Barnabas. Flip back real quick into Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 36 and 37. We mentioned this earlier in our teachings. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas. His name is important here. Barnabas means son of encouragement, son of consolation, the word encouragement, uh, son of exhortation, the word encouragement. In verse 37, Barnabas sold a field he owned, and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. Because Barnabas was a native of Cyprus, he was probably well acquainted with, with Antioch. He was therefore especially qualified for the work on which they sent him. The Jerusalem church kept tabs on what's going on in the early church. Remember, they, they wanted to go make sure what was going on at Cornelius' house. Go check Peter out. Make sure, and make sure this is what's happening uh, to those at Cornelius' house. And then we saw the other Jews, they, they responded by believing. Now, it's interesting because we're going to deal with Barnabas quite a bit uh, in the book of Acts. I want you to write down these two verses. His name is the son of encouragement. It's the word exhortation. In 1 Corinthians 14.3 and in Romans chapter 12, verse 8, there is a gift. That is given to the church. I've often shared there's 21 gifts that I see uh, in the scriptures. That doesn't mean there's only 21 gifts. There are gifts that are not even mentioned that God can use in and through your life. But one of those gifts is one that has the gift of exhortation. Now, please, whatever you do, don't think of the gift of exhortation. Oh, Lord, give me that because my neighbor needs to be exhorted. You know what your dog does in my yard every day? And that's what we want to do. The gift of exhortation is to bring out the wrong. Yes, 
but it's also to build up of the body of Christ. Notice now, verse 23. When he came and had seen the grace of God, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. This is Barnabas. And he encouraged them all that uh, with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. Barnabas had this gift of encouragement, also called the gift of exhortation. I mean, basically, that's what his name meant. Very important gift. Now, in exhortation, it's a time to tear down. A time to tear down some of the things at the church that are in air. And so you take care of it uh, exactly like that. But we have to always remember, and please don't forget this, there has to be a time uh, to build back up. Don't just tear down the brother and the sister in Christ. Uh, you did this, you did that. You need to back it up with Scripture, obviously. And just as important, you need to build back up the brother, the sister in Christ. There's a Scripture that I've always been acquainted with, and I love it, and it fits so perfect here. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, uh, listen to what Paul says to the churches there were many churches in, in Galatia. He says, brethren, he's speaking to the church. If a man is overtaken in any trespass or any sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gladness, gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. To restore is very important here uh, in the Greek. Restore the dislocation. Whatever caused the dislocation. I'm angry, brother. I'm angry. Something caused that. Work through the scriptures. Work through prayer. Work through compassion. Have a cup of coffee with them. Let me follow up tomorrow. I know you're hurt. But you want to restore them you don't want to leave them you want to bring back that dislocation it was also used in the medical term god forbid you go to the doctor you broke your arm and, and you know you can see that it's broken and so you go in the doctor says yep it's broken and so he just bandages it gives you two aspirin come back tomorrow doctor i don't know much about well, aren't you supposed to set it yeah we'll do it next week no it's time to set it back into place. Now it's time to take care of that dislocation. There's a lot of hurting people. People come into the church because they're hurting. People come into the church because they're looking for answers. People come into the church and they want to be built up. Yes, they're sin. Because we've sinned. They've sinned. We're all sinners. Saved by grace. Unmerited favor. We deserve judgment. But God builds us up. I shared this many times, and it's coming to my memory again. When I was about 16, 17 years old, I, I went to the church, got into the confessional, and I gave the priest my sins. He starts yelling at me, loud. I had people outside of the box there. Hey, keep it down, man. He exhorted me hard. I'm going to be honest with you. I never 
went back to confession. Never. I went to the altar. I lifted up my hands. I said, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry. Forgive me. In all the years that I've confessed to God, he has never once yelled at me. But he loves me. He loves you. And it gets frustrating. And so Galatians says, restore a brother. Restore a sister. Don't just exhort to tear down, but let's build it back up. And how do you do it? How did, uh, I mean, how did Barnabas do it? But with love, agape love. Look at verse 24 now. For he was a good man, gives us testimony. Uh, Luke is writing, he's giving the testimony uh, of this beautiful man, Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. And it's rhetorical, full of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Not added to Barnabas, but added to, to the Lord. Barnabas was a man of God. He exhorted with love and compassion. But he built them back up with that same love, agape love. Notice his testimony, a good man in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with faith. The result, a great many uh, people were added uh, to the Lord. Notice, not to Barnabas as we shared, but to the Lord. Well, Pastor Bob, that's Barnabas. That's Barnabas. This, this Saul of Tarsus is going to become Paul the Apostle. Well, what about me? Didn't the Great Commission include you? Go and take the gospel. There's a passage that I love so much in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 20. Paul is writing uh, to Timothy, a pastor in the church that wants to quit. I believe those two letters are just, he, he wants to give up. Ministry was tough, and he talks about vessels. He goes, Timothy, in a great house, there are two types of vessels, vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. You see, we were all vessels of dishonor. The vessels used in the time of Jesus uh, in a house, you had the vessels of dishonor. This was the discharge for the night of those going to the bathroom and such, and they would put the waste, and then one of the servants had to clean that in the morning. That's what kind of vessels we were. But now we've come to Christ, we're vessels of honor uh, to be used by the Master. We are tools in the hand of God. We are instruments in the hand of God. Years ago, I heard a testimony of a young girl just recently had come to Christ and she was on fire for the Lord. And uh, Jehovah's Witnesses came to her door. And she went to the door. She was only a Christian for weeks, this few weeks. But she was on fire. They came to share with her. She didn't know any better. She didn't know a Jehovah's Witness from a Mormon or a Christian. She didn't know. And they started sharing with them. And she was getting excited because they were reading the Word of God. And, and then they said, well, we want you to become one of us. I am. I'm a Christian. And they kept arguing with her. And they got mad at her. There's always an elder that goes with them. And the elder got mad. You're trying to tell me that you're born again of the Holy Spirit. And I've been doing this for 20 plus years door to door. I don't know, but something happened to me two weeks ago. I'm saved, I'm born again of the Holy Spirit. How do you argue with that? Give them your testimony. 
what God brought you from. Give them your testimony. I, I was uh, an alcoholic. I was a drug addict. I was a whoremonger. I was this. I was that. I was a liar. And I came to Christ. And he's transformed me. He's changed me. Barnabas had a, a testimony. Barnabas had a witness. This Barnabas was a man of God. This Barnabas was ready. And so he wants to use each and every one of us. Now, verse 25 is interesting. We don't have much commentary. We can read into it. Then Barnabas from that point departs, uh, you know, uh, Antioch. And he goes to Tarsus to seek Saul. Now, we don't know how long Saul has been there. One of my commentaries, and I've got to do some research on this. I looked everywhere else. I couldn't find They said up to this point, Paul has been saved about nine years. I don't know. If so, what's he doing in Tarsus? He's ministering. That's his hometown. He's giving the word of God. But now the Lord says it's time to take it to the Gentiles. And at the same time to the Jews. Notice Barnabas departs. Who told Barnabas to go? Has to be the Holy Spirit. Did he know uh, of Saul of Tarsus? Obviously he did. How God puts these things together. How, how did Peter and Cornelius come together? But it was through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're seeking the Spirit of God in your life, He's going to lead you and guide you into all truth. I've come into situations and I just, I don't, I, I go, wow, this is weird. I just look up into the heavens and say, thank you, Lord. He brings these things together. Uh, look at verse 26. We continue. And when he had found him, speaking of Saul of Tarsus, which will be Paul the apostle, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was uh, for a whole year they assembled with the church and they taught a great many of the people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Paul hasn't even changed his name. The Lord's going to change his name from Saul of Tarsus uh, to Paul the Apostle. The, the, the name Paul means little one. God had to break him. God had to mold him and shape him. God took him from being a Pharisee, a very religious man, and he transforms him. Paul goes back to tent making, and God uses that. It is so important to see when the Lord has opened doors for us. In verse 26, they were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, let me give you some background here. Historians tell us they were called Christians to set them aside uh, of who they were. They were Christ followers. They were Christ believers. The word Christos uh, is Messiah. The anti-Christians used the word in derision. It was meant to attack them. Yet the church, the body of Christ, received it as a mark of who they were. They were Christians. They were Christ-likeness. They were Christians. They were Christ followers. When you tell somebody you're a Christian, your life better represent Christianity. I go up to somebody and I say, hey, I'm a Christian. And I'm drinking my beer in front of them, smoking my cigarettes and cursing. Hey, let me tell you this new joke. I'm going to have to say, Christian? 
And see, I, I speak from experience. When I got saved, I went back to my job. I was radical in some areas. And all of a sudden, these guys were coming out from the woodwork. And they're going, hey, Bob, I'm a Christian just like you. And they've been going to the bars with me just like me. Where's the changed life? Where's the transformation? Where's the metamorphosis? Where's the new man? Where's the new woman? They were called Christian in Antioch for a reason. Please, be Christ-like. I'm not perfect, neither are you. But man, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be more like Jesus. Now, to see how God was working in the hearts of those in Antioch, this is amazing. Verses 27 through 30, relief, financial gain has to be sent to Jerusalem. And it is done through Saul and Paul and Barnabas. But it's interesting how it takes place. Look at verse 27. And in those days, prophets, nothing wrong with that, came from Jerusalem to Antioch. The growth of the church in Antioch is shown by the ministry of the prophets now. We will see that they came to warn of the famine conditions that was pending. Were they sent from Jerusalem? Good question. It doesn't say. Many times these were self-appointed men. Yet some could have the gift of prophecy. We can't question that. We have to follow it. A true prophet of God, listen to this, uh, would declare the will of God in the area of future events under direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Prophets and apostles were a strong commodity in the early church. Now, obviously, Peter and John, James, they were apostles. The word apostles is the word apostolos, and it basically means you're a representative of Christ. You're an ambassador of Christ. Do we have apostles today? If you want to call yourself one, praise God. It's not going to offend me. But then don't go get cards saying the apostle George or Fred or whatever it might be. Some people do. That's up to you. But are you an ambassador of Christ? Are you a representative of Christ? That's what an ambassador is. Now, listen to a prophet. A prophet was interesting. And a prophet was one that foretold, or a foreteller, excuse me. A prophet was a foreteller of God's word. Now, Agabus is going to give a prophecy here. Prophets were desperately needed in the Old Testament or the New Testament. We've shared many times in the Old Testament when the prophet came into your city, he came in for two reasons. One was he came to bless you. And if he didn't come to bless you, the second one, he came to pronounce judgment on you. And so many times they knew what they were doing in the city. And they said, don't bring the prophet in. Get him out of here. In fact, they wanted to kill him. Study Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, constantly being badgered. Study Elijah. What was he doing hiding in a cave? He was running from Jezebel, and yet he was supposed to be the man of God. But God's going to use the prophet here. Now, here's the question I asked the first service, and I'll ask you. Do we need prophets today? The prophet is one that gives forth the word of God. Basically, that's what I do on Sunday morning. That's what I do on Wednesday nights. When you share and you bring forth the, uh, the scriptures, you're being a prophet. In evangelism, you reach out and you give them the Word of God. Now, the Word of God was not complete yet. 
They were developing, listen, the New Testament. They have 66 books now, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, but it was being developed now. And so you say you want to be a prophet of God, here's your tool. Let me tell you what the Word of God has to say. And you read. And you do it with love and compassion and grace. And so Agabus has a prophecy here. Look at verse 28. It says, Then one of them, his name is Agabus, we're going to study more about him later, he stood up and he showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. That's very important that Luke put that in there. During the times of Claudius Caesar. Now, everybody asks the question, and we go through commentaries and such, what was the sign? It doesn't say. But he's talking about a famine condition. I'm thinking, this is my thought, does he have a jar of wheat? And he says, this is what's going to happen. And he empties it. Or he has a jar of honey, and he empties it on the ground. Or he has flour, and he empties it. Whatever it might be, there was a sign. And the sign hit their heart. It pricked their heart, and they were ready. And they made some changes. Now, during this time of Claudius, the Caesar at the time, obviously something is happening. Because the people went to prepare. But in that time of Claudius Caesar, we know from historical writing, the emperor Claudius was marked by a succession of bad harvests, which resulted in scarcity of food in various parts of the empire of Rome, Greece, Egypt, as well as Judea. And so it, it happened. This is the church at Antioch. They take heed to what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. Look at verse 29. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, as they determined to send relief uh, to the brethren dwelling in Judea. I like what one of my commentaries said. Hey, you can tell these are truly disciples, uh, Christians, followers of Jesus, because they gave generously uh, to meet the needs. They gave each according uh, to his ability. We just studied the book of Acts chapter 10. We saw a man named Cornelius. Remember that Cornelius was a Gentile. He was a military centurion, a captain in charge of a thousand men. We know that he was a, of the Italian regiment. He was a Gentile believer. The Holy Spirit fell upon him and the church there at his household. But remember about Cornelius? God had seen his prayer life. And God had seen his almsgiving. Go back, Acts chapter 1, right there in the beginning. God has seen it. Does God have a book of remembrance? God can remember anything. Does he know when I pray? Yes. Does he know when you pray? Does he know when we give? Yes. And what does God want? Your 10% every Sunday? now. God wants a cheerful giver. Whatever you give, give it from the heart. And I'm going to read it to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verse 7, Paul says you must each decide in your heart how much to give and don't, be, uh, don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure for God loves a, a person who gives cheerfully. I like what the King James says. God loves a cheerful 
giver. Whoopee! I'm giving my offering uh, to the Lord. Now, we have to be very careful because there are those that will uh, they'll put the, the plea on you. And they will ask, and they will take up the offering once, twice, three times. I've seen it. And here at Calvary Chapel, we just give from the heart. And it's interesting, our church is not the biggest church, and yet God has taken care of us financially. And it's all part of you as you give from the heart. God loves a cheerful giver. Another commentary said this about the verse. We see they determined to give those that's at, at, at Antioch. If a person does not determine to give, they often never do. There's no pressure. Unless the Holy Spirit's leading you, you're going to go round and round in circles. But look what happened to the church at Antioch. In verse 30, the conclusion. This they also did. They collected the finances for the Jerusalem church. And they sent it to the elders of the church by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. I thought that was interesting. Now, I believe that Barnabas has been back and forth to Antioch. But now he goes and gets Saul of Tarsus and he brings him back. We're told that they've been there a year now ministering. They saw the hearts of these men. Hey, our brothers in Jerusalem need help. Here, we want you to take this to them. Here's the result of being led by the Holy Spirit. The Christians in Antioch highly regarded Barnabas and Saul. The evidence is the fact that they trusted with a relief fund and they sent them to Jerusalem. They trusted Barnabas. They trusted Saul to take the finances. And the first time in the book of Acts that the word elders comes forth concerning those that are in the ministry. Take it to the elders in Jerusalem. The word elders is a word presbyteros, and it basically spoke of a, a, an aged man, a mature man in Christ. Luke gives us no hint as to how the office of an elder came in, into existence or by what means elders were chosen. There was a group of elders that ruled over each Jewish synagogue, and it's probable that the Christian church adapted the Jewish pattern. Probably uh, the believers uh, constituted uh, members of, of house congregations to several home congregations. This is the early church. They were underground. Here we are, 21st century. If things continue to get tougher on the Christian church and on pastors, they could easily come in and shut the church down. What are we going to do? We go to the underground. We go to the catacombs. We go wherever we can meet. We could set up small groups. We can meet at homes. They don't know what's going on. I'm being very serious because uh, they're coming down more and more and more. We're, we've been having board meetings with our board. We've been having board meetings with the church in El Paso. And the protection that we have to set on our church concerning, you know, the same-sex marriage. They're going to come. They're going to ask. We want to get married. I'm sorry. We don't do that here. And they're going to want to sue you. They're going to want to sue you. This is what's happening, church. The elders were there at Antioch. 
there was elders that were waiting in Jerusalem. We're going to read more and more about Barnabas and Saul. Saul's going to become Paul the Apostle. God's going to use him mightily. They took the scriptures for what it said. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and now the Great Commission, go, take it. I'm excited to see what God wants to do in our church here. We have our Monday night discipleship class. We have our Tuesday night recovery class. We have our Wednesday night Bible study. And then we have our Micah study for men. And then, you know, we have the Revelation study on, on Fridays. And now all week we have something. Evangelism classes on Saturday mornings. Watch what God's going to do. If we're serious, if we ask the Holy Spirit to fall upon us, He's going to move. He's going to do things. There's family members in each and every one of your home. They don't know Christ. I still, Mary and I still have family that don't know Jesus. And maybe they're not going to hear it. Maybe it's through you, or maybe you plant the seed. Somebody waters, somebody takes in the harvest. But we have to be ready. Oh, I hope and pray that the rapture of the church comes in September. But I can honestly tell you what's going to happen. We're going to come in to October, and the non-Christian is going to attack you. What happened? Where's the rapture? I thought you guys were going to get raptured. Sound like you got ruptured. What happened? I, I, I've heard it all. I've heard it all. We keep following Christ, and we keep until he comes for his church. Praise the Lord. People are you going to go to Israel again? Yeah. What if? And I go, I go to California. What's the difference? You got to trust God. Wouldn't that be beautiful to be raptured in Israel? Come on. Leave it in God's hands, church. Leave it in God's hands. They were called Christians first in Antioch. Followers of Christ. Believers of Christ. They were Christ-like. Let's stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, your grace, your love, your mercy. Lord, I pray this morning, if there's anybody here that still has not received Christ as their Lord and Savior, today is the day of your salvation. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm not here to judge any one of you. But if you'd like to receive Christ real quick, I'll say a simple prayer with you right there where you're at. Raise your hand real quick, and I'll lead you in the sinner's prayer. If you'd like to receive Christ this morning, please raise your hand. Anybody here? Praise the Lord. Father, we thank you for the body of Christ here this morning. As you have filled us with your word, we ask you also, Lord, to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Pour out your spirit, Lord, as was poured out at Pentecost, as was prophesied in the book of Joel in chapter 2. Thank you, Lord, for the parakletos, for the Holy Spirit that will come alongside and minister to us. And he will lead us and guide us into all truth. Father, bless the offerings this morning. As you've given to us, we give back a portion. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.